We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody, Steve with Sense Fidel. I'm coming at you once again with a book review. This one on They Live the Faith, some great lead lo uh, leaders in modern times with a forward by Michael Graney of the Socialism series we produced. And this is published by Mediatrix Press and we have Ryan Grant on to talk about this and ask Michael some questions. So Ryan, thank you for finding the book and putting it through and uh, please, uh, the, coast, the uh, floor is yours. <laughs> okay, well thank you very much uh, for hosting this and uh, Michael, thank you again for uh, writing the forward to the book. Um, so, They Lived the Faith is a series of uh, biographies of 13 Catholics who lived in the 19th and, and mostly the 19th and a little bit the early 20th century and how they dealt with social problems, can say, in one, politically, two, in terms of their social action, and three, in terms of intellectual work and writing. And so, we're going to consider some of the people today in, in biographies. And so, um, and now, Michael, before we talk about, uh, you know, some of the individuals in this book, I wanted to, to lay the ground for what, where things are in the 19th century and why, you know, there's this problem that Catholics now have to react to. Why is the church in, in a weakened situation since, well, and French Revolution ended, Napoleon is beaten, you know, what's, what's life looking like now in the, as the 19th century progresses? Well, in, in a sense, you can't blame the French Revolution alone. What you have to do is look at what was going on in the world in the centuries leading up to the French Revolution, because it didn't just come out of nowhere, obviously. Mm -hmm. No revolution ever does, even though it does seem as if it was an earthquake that appeared from out of nowhere to the people who experienced it. Uh, as, you know, toward the end of the Middle Ages, you had developing, you know, as commerce increased and, you know, and trade and economic life expanded, you had basically a revolution in money, credit, banking, and finance. Uh, around the 14th century, people reinvented commercial banking, which I won't, I won't lecture you on commercial banking theory. But by the end of the 17th century, you had the first true central bank, the Bank of England. I think it was 1694 it was established. And you also had in 1696, the first true insurance company, Lloyd's of London. And what this meant was that commerce and industry could expand geometrically all of a sudden, instead of just you know slowly advancing. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that innovation, especially technical innovation, relies on what you can finance. And what the financial revolution did from about the, uh, the 12th to the, the 17th century laid the groundwork to shift financing you know, economic growth and development from what we can call past savings, you know, past reductions in consumption, 
things that you've accumulated as money savings to what we call future savings. In other words, instead of past reductions in consumption, you're financing with future increases in production. All of a sudden, economic growth is not bound by what you managed not to consume before, but it opens up an entire panorama of what you can produce in the future. Only your imagination and how you can exploit resources in a good way. Uh, although it ended up being in many cases in a very bad way. Uh, so that instead of being bound by the past, by the actualities of what you have now, the only thing that binds you is the potential for the future. Well, unfortunately, the way finance developed was even though in concept or potentially every single human being has the potential to own this, these new technological advances and new forms of capital instead of just their own labor or land or simple machines, the rich ended up owning it. And of course you had the steam engine come in. You had you know, amazing technical advances like the power loom, uh, the spinning jenny, uh, the cotton gin. Ironically, the cotton gin resulted in expanding human slavery simply because other technological advances weren't keeping pace. Uh, so that the first revolution before the French Revolution was the financial revolution, which there, there, there's a, actually a curve that you can make called a, a, you know, a development curve. Prior to you know, the, invent, the reinvention of commercial banking and the invention of central banking, you see it just a flat you know, growth curve, very slightly going up. But the moment you can switch financing from the past to the future, it goes almost straight up. Uh, then you had the, you know, the, the political revolutions. Uh, no, excuse me, the industrial revolution. Sorry, I, I, the political revolution comes after the industrial revolution because the industrial revolution was made possible by the fact that you could finance things by what they could produce in the future rather than by what you had withheld from consumption in the past. And simply because of the collateralization requirement, the rich ended up owning, you know, by and large, the new machinery, which made them tremendously rich because, frankly, what you can produce from machinery is going to outstrip what you can produce with human labor alone. And unfortunately, what happened was then that human beings changed from providers of essential labor that only they could provide because they were the chief producers of marketable goods and services. So that, for instance, Adam Smith simply ignored the Industrial Revolution in his theories, even though he does pay, you know, he does acknowledge that technology can do many things more efficiently than human labor but he just assumed human labor was permanently you know, important in production. Well, not if you're replacing human labor so that you don't need skilled labor. All you need is somebody to push a button or pull a lever. You don't need to be too skilled to do that. Uh, even though as technology becomes more important or more complicated, you do have to be trained in how to manipulate it. But that's different from knowing how to be productive yourself 
you, what you, what was do, what was happening was that people were learning how to make capital that belonged to somebody else productive for the owners of the capital, not how to make themselves productive so that they got the benefits of it. Human labor changed from a key and essential input to a replaceable thing. It was fungible all of a sudden. So that people, ordinary workers, instead of being the most important thing in production, became a replaceable input. Uh, this, of course, meant that wages started going down relative to the, the, the cost of capital. And that made capital, the cheaper technology became, you know, on a per unit basis of production. And of course, technology is immensely productive so that even if you have a machine that costs a million dollars, if you can produce millions of units of marketable goods and services, the cost per unit is almost infinitesimal compared to the unit cost of human labor. So what are you gonna do? Replace human labor with technology. You, you, you have to. The key of course, as Lewis Kelso would point it out a couple of centuries later was that, well, if the machine is replacing your labor, it's important that you must be the owner of the machine, isn't it? He did this, said this in, in Life Magazine in an interview in 1964, if the machine wants our job, let's buy it, meaning buy the machine. But what was happening in the 18th century was that people were being displaced from being productive and being turned into just mere economic inputs, which of course had a serious effect on the politics of the day, which resulted in the French Revolution. See, the American Revolution was fundamentally different. That was uh, more political rights. The French Revolution was clearly social rights and economic rights that were being so distorted that most people were just being discarded. The, the collective became important. The driving theory behind the French Revolution was the sovereignty of the collective, you know, which is a human created abstraction. The driving force behind the American Revolution was the sovereignty of the human person created by God. And of course you had, you know, the in-between position of English, uh, the, the English revolution, actually, the, 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 the glorious revolution. I couldn't think of the name for a minute. Right. Uh, So-called glorious revolution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Well, I, I try not to comment on people's labels too much. <laughs> I said, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean what you yeah. mean. <laughs> it wasn't glorious in Scotland, but anyway, we could. <laughs> uh, or, uh, and what that was, was sovereignty of an elite, mm -hmm. whether political or economic. And of course the industrial right. revolution really took off in England. So what you had was the political elite shoved out by the new economic elite, which of course was the theory behind Walter Bagehot's English constitution in which he claimed that uh, the money interests, the money people, the capitalists were the ones who were really in charge of the government, <clears throat> which, became Keynesian economics and all, I won't get into that. Right. For which I, I see the, the look of relief on your face. Uh, <laughs> so that what happened was that with the French Revolution, you had the idea that the collective was sovereign. Well, obviously it failed in its, uh, in its efforts to promote, you know, the welfare of every single human being uh, by glorifying the collective. 
And this caused reactions both among, you know, ordinary Catholics who, you know, why did they abolish religion or at least try to? Why did they, you know, collectivize everything? Why did they take away our individual rights? Uh, and also among the disappointed supporters of the collective. It, it's interesting to note that the early socialists, they didn't call themselves socialists until about the 1830s, by the way. Uh, the early socialists were almost without exception opposed to the French Revolution. They didn't think it went far enough. So what they did was start developing their own theories, which would merge, you know, religious society, political society, or civil society, and domestic society, you know, marriage and family. You know, religious society is usually called church, and civil society, state. And most people today, of course, forget that domestic society, society is also a society of its own, marriage and family. And they merge them all into one uh, amorphous unit to be controlled. And the initially, socialism which also means modernism and esotericism has developed. Uh, these were the new things. The, every, everything became under the state, the democratic religion, which was as Dr. Julian Stuba of Heidelberg University has pointed out in his research, without exception, all the adherents of the new things, you know, whether you call them socialists, modernists, or whatever, always want to establish the kingdom of God on earth. They're going to establish the great society here. Now, that's not to say that Christianity and other natural religions uh, aren't looking to, to social improvement and trying to see that people live well here and now, but it's not an end in itself. It's supposed to get people in shape for their true end, which is, from a Catholic point of view, to be with God in heaven. I'm, I'm not quite sure what it is for the other religions. I'll let them speak for themselves. But life on earth is not an end in itself. But that's what the socialists and the modernists and the esotericists tried to make it. And this is why they called it the democratic religion, the religion of the people, so that the state became, you know, you know, just absorbed the family and the church and tried to make it just one big monolithic entity. Whether you're talking about at the village level, you know, a sort of autonomous socialism, which is what I think the guild socialists try to do these days, or, you know, uh, Marxist communism, which tries to impose you know, just one monolithic entity over the entire world. See, even though Marx and Engels ridiculed what they called the religious socialists or the utopian socialists, they were trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. But they just, you know, Marx was, was pretty consistent. He said, you know, what you're talking about isn't really religion. Why do you even bother to waste your time? Get rid of religion altogether. You're talking about life here on earth. Don't worry about you know any afterlife. It doesn't even exist. This is all that is. Life here is an end in itself. We will build the perfect workers' paradise here and now. Forget about you know any afterlife. At least he was consistent. He, actually, he was one of the more consistent socialist thinkers. 
uh, as was Delamonet, who was uh, a lot of liberal Catholics and neo-Catholics think that Delamonet was a great man. I, even George Weigel in his last book gave him good press, but he was, he was a socialist. He was a collectivist and he was also the reason why in uh, 1870 or was it was at 1869, the first Vatican Council finally got around to defining infallibility and the primacy of the intellect. So this was the stage or the stage setting in which the people in, they lived the faith, uh, you know, took, uh, car carried out their, their activities and their, their social and religious development. You had a society which was, while claiming to be the true Christianity, see, most socialisms claim to be the true Christianity in one form or another. That's why Henri de Saint-Simon called his uh, system the new Christianity, and his followers, after his death, established the Church of St. Simon, which I can't pronounce in French, but uh, uh, so that what you... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't say ha ha ha. You must say in your French. Okay. Uh, Steve, they mock us too, so we can get away with a few, you know, classic uh, Anglophone, <laughs> Francophone jibes and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, to avoid hate mail, Steve, you can cut that part out. Uh, <laughs> uh, but this was what the, the environment within which they struggled both personally, socially, and professionally. You had act, people who were absolutely convinced that what they were pushing was the true Christianity in opposition to what the Catholic Church was teaching and even a lot of the, the mainline Protestant churches by then, which had mostly, uh, you know, a, a lot of the mainline Protestant churches started out pretty radical. I mean, if you read, for instance, Monsignor Ronald Knox's enthusiasm, you can see that what, for instance, a modern Methodist would look at and say, oh, holy cow, we don't believe that. Not to say that John Wesley wasn't sincere, but he had some pretty wild ideas by our lights. But socialism and modernism were mostly against the Catholic Church as the, as the most sound system and the most consistent one, but they weren't too slow to go after the mainline Protestant churches either. So that what you had was virtually the whole of Western society being torn apart by this, this shift in orientation from the human person, which had been adhered to more or less and you know, uh, consistently with some rather huge uh, deviations such as chattel slavery and the growth of the factory system and, and, and capitalism. But socialism did not first start out as opposed to capitalism. In fact, some of the early capitalists, uh, socialists were also capitalists. Friedrich Engels was a capitalist. Robert Owen was a capitalist. He was one of the richest men in England, but he was also a socialist. And of course, Saint-Simon and Fourier actively sought the, the patronage of capitalists. It was only later under people like uh, uh, darn it, Cabet, who, with his uh, Icarian socialism, 
who started ranting against the capitalists because they wouldn't give him money. So, but socialism started first opposed to Catholicism primarily and to Orthodox Christianity in general. So that what you had was people like those profiled in this book. Uh, shall, I, shall I hold it up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, they were, some of them without realizing it, engaged in a global struggle of the human person against the impersonal abstractions of the collective and other and just you know human creations versus god creations because the human person is created by god whereas the collective is a human made abstraction i mean if if you want to get really classical you could say it was the it was the conflict as chesterton put it between plato and aristotle mm-hmm. plato with his ab, with his with his concept of ideals that you had to conform to in other words, ideas have existence apart from the human minds that create them, or Aristotle, who is down to earth and boring like the rest of us, who said, well, no, ideas are made by human beings, and they have no existence apart from the human minds that create them, which Aquinas, of course, took, developed, as he corrected so many other, uh, not well, not so many, but other ideas of Aristotle that didn't quite make it, and pointed out that you know, God does not create abstractions. God did not create the collective. God did not create humanity. God created human beings. We must be concerned with human beings, not with this abstraction of humanity. And that was the struggle that the people in They Live the Faith were dealing with, even if they may not have known it themselves. It was like this cosmic struggle, right? which sounds a little bit cosmic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so it was within all this discussion, the book begins, um, not in France, but actually in Ireland, which I thought was kind of significant because the Irish had, um, I mean, they'd been under English domination to a greater or lesser extent since the 11th century, but often to a lesser extent until the 16th. And when the Elizabethan, you know, uh, troops pick up again in Ireland and then under James where you have the Ulster plantations that begin various revolutions. You have the English Civil War where when the royalists lose on in the mainland, they all end up regrouping in Ireland with the uh, and join, forming the Irish Confederacy with the Irish and the old Catholics there. So the uh, which brings in Cromwell and the final domination of Ireland the, uh, you know, forcing the Irish off their own land, making them slaves <laughs> in their own country, and and so many other things. So by the time we come to the uh, the 18th century, in the 19th, at the 18th century, you have the first movement of United Irishmen, which really scares the British during the, hey, let's reach out to the French, you know, during the Napoleonic Wars. So the English have to put that down. So, so now you have a largely disenfranchised populace from any kind of ownership, really. You have a Protestant elite in Ireland, that native-born Irish Protestant elite, and and it's Catholicism still illegal in a way where where it, where it has a general toleration in England. So, the the first biography in the book, Daniel O'Connell, how does he manage to kind of break through uh, these various problems in Ireland to advance the Catholic cause there? Okay. Now, I'm I'm glad you asked that, and I'm when I first picked up the book to, you know, review it and try to figure out how to write a forward for it. 
I was very impressed by the fact, as a member of the Ancient Order of Hibernians, in fact, I'm, a, I'm the recording secretary for the Colonel John Fitzgerald Division Number 1 in Virginia. That means we're the first AOH division in Virginia. Okay, commercial. Uh, <laughs> now, what O'Connell accomplished was phenomenal. It was both, you know, individual virtue and what would later become under Pius XI, social virtue, the act of social justice, because he was only able to do what he did by organizing. And as you point out, it was phenomenal that it took place in Ireland, Ireland and in an Irish context. You see, in the 18th century, you actually had the Lord Justices of Ireland declare apparently without even, you know, without any embarrassment at all, that the law does not suppose that such a person as an Irish Catholic exists. I mean, even a slave had existence. The Irish were, in a sense, as Mitchell later pointed out, after the Young Ireland failure, uh, they were, in a sense, worse off than slaves because the law didn't even recognize their existence. Right. You could pretty much do anything you wanted to an Irish Catholic, and the law wouldn't even recognize it. Now, practically speaking, if somebody murdered an Irishman or something, something would be done, but probably not much. And in many instances, even after Catholic emancipation, people got away with uh, crimes against Irish that never would have been tolerated against anyone else. And this was in England, where they were considered English subjects equal to everyone else. Don't believe it. Uh, now, so what you had was people who didn't even exist. Now, at least in England, Catholics existed, but they still had disabilities, legal. They could not enter certain professions. They could not be educated. Uh, Test Act. Yeah, and they had to pay taxes to support the established church. So what O'Connell did now, he made two things the focus of his, of his work. One, which was the repeal of the Act of Union of 1800, which made Ireland legally a part of England, even though uh, it was done illegally. I think Curran pointed out when someone said, uh, he said, he was talking to someone else who had said, I looking at the old Irish Parliament building, he says, I can't even stand to look at it. And he said, and Curran said to him, of course not. No murderer likes to look at his victim. Uh, <laughs> but to repeal the Act of Union was a secondary issue to O'Connell right after, you know, Catholic emancipation. Catholics should, must have full civil rights and be recognized as equal British subjects with all other members of the United Kingdom. Because legally, Britain said they were. So why don't they have the rights that everyone else has? Uh, and this was, with it, it's ironic that the growth of the new things actually helped things, you know, the wrong kind of liberalism helped the right kind of liberalism. Uh, and unfortunately today, most people just lump all liberalism together without recognizing that there are three types. There's the 
the French or European type, we are the collectivist sovereign, the English type in which the elite is sovereign, and the American type in which the individual is sovereign. O'Connell was clearly for the sovereignty of the individual, but he was labeled by the British as if he were for the sovereignty of the collective, which of course both were a threat to the English type of liberalism in which the elite is sovereign and they wanted to maintain their privileges. But it was growing harder and harder to do so, particularly in light of the fact that the backbone of Wellington's army against Napoleon was Irish Catholic. And even though Wellington was himself opposed to Catholic emancipation, he was beginning to realize that you can't ignore a huge uh, portion of your population particularly one that has been trained in military uh, activities. <laughs> I mean, George Washington faced the same thing. Somebody, I think, suggested that they outlaw any further uh, uh, immigration by the Irish or that they out not allow Catholicism to be practiced. And George Washington said, you can't do that. A third of my army is Irish Catholic. So, so what... O'Connell managed to do, and he did this brilliantly by joining the interests of the English Catholics and the Irish Catholics to get Catholic emancipation. And he achieved it. I mean, the story is told in, in, in the book, in, in fairly broad outline. You don't really want to know all the intricacies of what went into it, like George IV crying as he signed the bill, you know, that kind of thing, uh, and why he did it, and, and the big, long, weepy speech he made. Uh, right. How terrible that he recognized people as people. Uh, Although, interestingly, uh, George III was, was keen on Catholic emancipation initially, did the Quebec Act, but with the uh, the King of France and the King of Spain, in, in, at least in, from George III's perspective, stabbing him in the back during the American Revolution, he said, well, maybe I don't want to do Catholic emancipation after all, and kind of leaves it off. Yeah, I, I think I have more admiration, if that's even the word, for George III than for George IV. Right. Uh, apparently, George IV was a very charming man. And when he I, wasn't drunk or, or high on opium. or. <laughs> Yeah, I'm more fooling around. He may have been married two or three times at the same time. Right. Uh, Mrs. What was her name? Mrs. Fitzgerald or something. Mm -hmm. They're not sure to this day whether there was an actual marriage there, but that's right. another issue. I just have a knee jerk against people who are just charming all the time, and that's how they get what they want. Mm -hmm. uh, they usually tend up tend to be, and I, and I realize this is a technical term, jerks. Uh, <laughs> but Having achieved Catholic emancipation, uh, his next goal, repeal of the Act of Union, was not one that he could call in international support for. Uh, it was only popular with the Irish and then not all of them. As you point out, the ascendancy was in control. They didn't really want Catholic emancipation, although they were forced to go along with it. Some Now, true, some of them were, a few, but some Protestant support for emancipation came not from the, the Anglo-Irish ascendancy that, that were Church of Ireland, but from 
the other outlawed group that didn't have full civil rights, the Presbyterians, the orange men. Now, they too were in favor of repeal of the Act of Union at that time. Later, the orange men became firm supporters of union. But we're, we're, we're getting into very deep waters there. The point here is that the Act of Union, which really doesn't have too much to do with uh, they lived the faith because it didn't have too much to do with the faith. Uh, it was not an international issue. It did not really attract support among the common English people who were very proud of the United Kingdom and didn't want Ireland separated. So Catholic emancipation was achieved in large measure because the average Englishman was in favor of it. I mean, even though they weren't Catholic, they could see the just the basic unfairness that of you know Irish Catholics or, and English Catholics not having full civil rights. And you saw this also in, for example, you know, later when Newman, Cardinal Newman, St. John Henry Cardinal Newman. Um, not to be confused with Seinfeld's Newman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> but when he was attacked by Charles Kingsley, and he decided that the, the best way to handle this was finally just present his case to the English, the average Englishman, which he did brilliantly in Apologia Pro Vita Sua. And Kingsley, of course, expected people to side with him because he was a Christian socialist. He was for the people and all these other things. But the at that time, the typical Englishman was still pretty much a fair person, fair-minded. I'm not sure how, how fair-minded anybody is these days, but when Newman presented his case to the average Englishman, they could see the unfairness of what Kingsley had done to him. And instead of being a pariah as Kingsley intended, in other words, he was basically, Newman was retired when Kingsley did this. And he was kicking a man when he was down. And the typical Englishman of the day didn't think that was right. And when he died in 1890, Newman was probably one of the most popular men in England, which was directly the opposite of everything Kingsley had intended to do. So Catholic emancipation was carried through largely because the typical Protestant of the day thought it was right. It wouldn't have gotten support otherwise. Mm -hmm. Repeal of the Act of Union was not popular. Right. So ultimately, O'Connell failed in that, mm -hmm. which got the young Ireland who wanted violence. Oh, one of the great things about O'Connell was he refused to countenance violence. Mm -hmm. And when he failed with, with the repeal of the Act of Union, that gave impetus to the young Ireland movement and then later to the Fenians and others, and which managed to get back on track with Parnell, but then they sabotaged Parnell. You don't really want to get into Irish politics. No, you don't. Um, now, one figure that actually visited O'Connell on a few occasions, and although his first impressions weren't so good, later O'Connell would be a great inspiration to him, was a French nobleman. Uh, and, and I'm sorry for the Francophones in the audience who have probably already offended. I'm really going to mess up his name. But uh, the Count Montalembert, I think. Am I close? <laughs> Probably well, not. Since, 
Uh, you're, you're close enough as far as I'm concerned because I can't pronounce it either. Right. I so just, uh, Montalembert, I'm familiar with uh, from some of his writings, especially like his Life of St. Elizabeth of Hungary, which um, I remember I'm actually still looking to reprint that book um, at some point. I just got to get the proof corrected. But he, um, you know, really important figure in the book. So wh where does, what's his impact on French politics and uh, in, in the life of the church in, in the 19th century? Uh, recall that I had said, I, I mentioned, you know, uh, Felicité de Lamennais. Right. You know, who after uh, Comte de Maistre died, Joseph Comte de Maistre, uh, took over as the acknowledged leader of the neo-Catholic movement. Originally, neo-Catholicism was, was nothing more than a strong ultramontanism, you know, giving the Pope a lot more power than perhaps people were ready for or wanted to acknowledge, and greatly exaggerated the role of the Pope, uh, which is eventually why the First Vatican Council kind of reigned in, the, you know, these exaggerated notions of papal infallibility and the role of the Pope. Most people don't realize that when papal infallibility was defined, it was to make certain people didn't put too much onto the role of the Pope. It was actually reining it in rather than expanding it, which a lot of people, including Newman at first, misunderstood. Uh, but Montalembert was an early associate of de Lamennais, as was a priest by the name of Lacordaire. And you got, of course, all these Frenchmen always have these big, long strings of names, which I can never remember. Uh, but when de Lamennais began to get even more radical and increasingly uh, shrill, I guess is the word you want, uh, Montalembert finally separated from him. Uh, and he later became a friend of, of Cardinal Newman. And Newman you know, spoke very highly of him, but there was one problem that Newman couldn't quite reconcile between Montalembert and Lacordaire, both of whom he greatly admired for their work and had no problem with their ideas except for one word, liberal. Newman did not like the word liberal because to Newman it meant two things, either the radical socialists or the elitist capitalists. He didn't, for some reason, Newman did not use the term or recognize American-type liberalism, where the individual is sovereign, even though once you read Newman, you can see, oh, he was an American-type liberal. If you had called Newman a liberal, he would have, in a very polite English way, been insulted. Uh, but what Montalembert did uh, was clarify uh, for a lot of people, that American liberal, American type liberalism was consistent with uh, Catholicism. And even though he was an aristocrat and uh, a lot of people didn't care for him, O'Connell, who was the quintessential American type liberal, uh, kind of dismissed him, probably figured, oh, here's this young Frenchman coming in to, you know, rather bumptious and you know, he probably also didn't like the fact that he was speaking with a French accent and appeared to be too much. He, he didn't fit into Irish daily life the way O'Connell did. O'Connell was definitely a man of the people. When Montalembert 
actually went to visit him, he was kind of put off by the fact that, you know, he didn't really fit into the daily life of the Irish peasant. Uh, it's just like, these are not like French peasants. Uh, you know, surprise, surprise. Uh, We're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> yeah, pretty much it. I, I mean, the life of the Irish peasant in the 19th century, it may have improved substantially by, you know, the end of the 19th century, but it still was not exactly what it should have been. And one of the things that, you know, drove o Dan O'Connell was that these people are treated as if they're not even human in many respects, which of course gets us back to what we already finished discussing before. We're trying to get to Montalembert. He came gradually to understand after his disillusionment, after visiting O'Connell, what O'Connell had managed to accomplish. He realized that uh, Ireland and France are not the same, any more than England and France are the same, or England and Ireland. Uh, so, so what Montalembert did was not as a man of the people, but he did important work in helping to reconcile at least the political theory of Catholicism and liberalism in many ways, even though a lot of people didn't understand it then and they still don't understand it now. That was me finishing talking on that subject. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, uh, the next individual that uh, is discussed in the book is uh, Gabriel Garcia Moreno. And as Steve, you just got done with a, a, a podcast on him. Um, Latin American government in the 19th century. There's a lot of Freemasonry. There's a lot of, um, you know, Pius IX, uh, when he was a priest, is sent there uh, by, by Pius VII in a mission trip, and he's shocked by the way the government treats the church there. And what, what's the groundwork like in Latin America as compared to, you know, as we talked about French liberalism, versus English versus American. What kind of liberalism is reigning at the moment in, uh, it's, you know, in Latin America? Uh, so, yeah, back in those days, it, it kind of reminds you of what you're seeing today in our land. Because uh, when Garcia takes over, he, there's, there's no road, well, except we had roads. Uh, they got massive depth. They're in wars. Uh, they, they even call it unconstitutional wars. Uh, there's just crisis all over. They're all split. There's little factions over here. It's a bit, like you said, it's huge Freemasonic influence. Uh, military is basically uh, running the show. Uh, so you have to have a, you have to be a strong, how would you say, backbone, strongly authoritar authoritarian in a sense to be able to get anything done uh, in these times. So Garcia, he's one of, he's former military. Uh, goes to France actually, and I think it's Saint Sulpice. Uh, am I saying that right? Sulpice. Yeah, the church out there. Yep. Uh, and he basically finds religion again when he's out in France because he's out there learning politics, try to how do I save my country? He's all about if literally when you're reading about this, it's almost like keep America first type deal. He's keep Ecuador first. He's, He's MEGA, make Ecuador great again. And 
he comes back. I mean, he's literally at St. Sulpice after a friend of his basically reconverts him. Uh, he, he was born Catholic, kind of like a fall away. You know, you see like a Catholic named only type deal. A friend of his out in France basically puts a, you know, gets him, gets him motivated to get back in religion. And he comes back and gets elected in 1861. He has two, he has three terms to be on. He gets killed in the, before his third. His first term is 1861 to 1865, and then again in 69 to 75. There's a, I think it was his, his uh, uh, antagonist gets elected in between them. But, I mean, this was predicted by uh, Our Lady of Good Success. If you ever, if everyone knows the story about that, she predicted a, a Catholic president would come in. And she used the word president in a time when no one ever heard what the word president means. So Garcia comes in, he brings in uh, teaching orders, the Dominicans, Redemptress. Uh, he brings in all these, he brings in the, redoes the monasteries, you know, cleans everything up for the, the faith, puts the faith number one. That's his, uh, if you see his rule of life right here, they found that in his, after he got killed, he did that every day. He would go to mass and do a meditation before he started anything every day. Family, uh, church first, family second. The country of Ecuador afterwards, and his door was wide open. So he builds roads. He builds, he's talking about the, the old joke, who will build the roads? Garcia Moreno did. <laughs> and it boosted, just boosted the economy. He brought back all the, he stopped all the illegal wars. He eliminated the debt. You're looking at this going, how could anybody get mad about this? But he had people hate, the Freemasons hated this guy. Uh, he consecrated Ecuador to the Sacred Heart. He led the procession. The cross is still in the cathedral uh, in Quito. He just he would drag the cross in front of the procession is the ruler of Ecuador. And if anybody wonder how big Ecuador is, it's smaller than the Nevada. So you could technically you could do this in all the states. I don't know about a size of the continental United States, but you could do this if you had somebody worth anything in office. But um he uh, he had his great slogan, "Liberty for all, except evil and evil doers." Um, there was a great well. He 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 was for the death penalty. He was you were not. There was no traitorism that was going to go on in his uh, ranks. It was a boyhood friend of his that I think it was, they were trying to launch a coup, and they found he was a part of it for some reason. And he Garcia found out, and obviously it was the penalty for traitor is death. His wife came in and pleaded. His, he had every, all his friends came in and pleaded. He said, I do not want anybody to come to me again until, the, until he is dead. And walked three miles down to the, to the uh, church that he thought was far away enough that he couldn't hear the gunshots. And told them to come get me there and that's where I'll be praying for his eternal soul. Uh, there, was a, there was an earthquake. This will tick off a lot of libertarians. There was an earthquake in uh, the southern part of Ecuador. I forget the name of it. It destroyed everything. But people would come in and they found a way, just like any other market. Uh, you hear about hurricanes like Katrina during the times. They jacked up the water, jacked up gas. They were trying to make big profits. The hotels, astronomical you know, profits or uh, costs for everything. You hear guys like uh, there will be uh, libertarians like uh, Mises would say there's an article about the fence of Scrooge. So... Garcia comes through town and sees that somebody was basically jacking up food, bananas, apples, whatever, meat. 
publicly has him flogged in the middle of the city just to prove a point that you will not take advantage of people in crisis or an emergency like this. There's bodies all over the place from dead. And this guy's just trying to make a you know profit off everyone's misfortunes. And shockingly enough, nobody attempted to do that again afterwards. Um, and on, just the just guy was just the the quintessential uh, diplomat. He wrote the Pius the Ninth. Him and Pius the Ninth were pen pals, if you would say. He he would ask him, "What is my what is your advice on how I should handle this situation?" And Pius the Ninth would write him back. He put himself under the authority of Pius the Ninth, but. Ah, Again, the Freemasons had this plan to get rid of him. Right. Uh, they made this ordeal to say that he he was needed in the needed at the uh, the office uh, right it was right right after mass uh, the day before they were trying to do it and they ended up not because there was actually somebody else in the square. He comes out, they shoot him a couple times, hack him a couple times, hacked off his ears, ears hanging off. They carry him inside to Our Lady of Sorrows altar and. Before he says, Deus no morte. He might die, but God does not die. And he ended up dying a few hours later underneath the uh, the altar. Uh, and that was right at the beginning of his third uh, term. And he didn't want, he wasn't like he was running. He wasn't printing out, you know, well, I'll say mega, M-E-G-A, mega shirts, mega hats, or anything like that. The people wanted him back in. Uh, this was strictly a, uh, I mean, Everybody loved him. It was turmoil and anarchy afterwards, though. Uh, Pius IX called him a martyr for the church, and Leo XIII said it was an epitome of Catholic governance. Uh, the best book that's out there in English is uh, Father Burst's book entitled Garcia Moreno. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, fantastic guy. Every day would read the imitation. Said he would never never pray sitting. We would always kneel or stand. Uh Tell our Lord, you know, he's. if it weren't for him, he'd be worse than a demon. Uh, it's just not even for politics, which we would pray for somebody to become like that in our world of politics, uh, but just for a quintessential man himself. Right. So, um, so Michael, Steve mentioned a little bit about Freemasonry. We'll probably mention it again. What's, so in your three different, uh, uh, liberalisms that you mentioned where does freemasonry fall and and of course it's a it's a we don't have to get everything in freemasonry because that could that, you know be an episode in its own obviously but you know in terms of with the life of the church in the 19th century in, in europe as opposed to say american freemasonry what's freemasonry you know largely doing in um in europe and in latin america well you can pretty much equate the different types of freemasonry and there are different types uh, with, with the three different types of liberal democracy or liberalism. In the European or French type of liberalism, you had the European type of Freemasonry, extremely radical, bent on the destruction of uh, you know, the church and the, the existing political order, and to all intents and purposes, socialist and modernist even though they probably wouldn't have thought of themselves as modernists because that's a, a Catholic term applied to the, that, that theology. Uh, 
Then you had the more moderate type of Freemasonry, of the English type or Scots type, uh, still not exactly, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, amenable to Catholicism, but more they they can that type of Freemason would generally considers themselves Christian, not what we would consider Christian as as Orthodox Catholics, but you know you you could they can make their argument. That doesn't mean you have to accept it. Then you had the sort of Freemasonry which was like American liberal democracy rooted in the English tradition. But if you ask an American Freemason, uh, they they regard you know their membership in a lodge or something as pretty much as, as a fraternity. Uh, like the bull moose and the Simpson, or not the Flintstones. Yeah, yeah, the, the water buffalo. <laughs> water buffalo, that's what it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, their their rituals and things may, you know, express, you know, antipathy to the Catholic Church and that sort of thing. But if you ask the typical Freemason why he was a Mason, he, he regards it more as a social club and a fraternity than a political statement. I think George Washington's uh, Masonic activities, he was a member of the Masonic Lodge, uh, and they have the Masonic Memorial here in Alexandria, which I've been in. Uh, as a member of the Washington Men's Camarada, we, we sang there once, and they have this big picture painting of George Washington, and you look at it, and you think, that head isn't big enough for that portrait. It's just, just <laughs> it's weird looking. But, you know, there are exceptions all through through all the different types of masonry, uh, but to overgeneralize, probably the American type of Freemason is, is often nothing more than, oh, this is my fraternity, or this is my civic organization. And they do great work. The Shriners Hospital, for example, does, does magnificent work with, with handicapped children. Nothing against them. But it's, it's, it's a secularist type thing and not quite compatible with being a Catholic. A friend of mine who was a convert to Catholicism, when he converted, he resigned from his Masonic Lodge. Uh, if you ask him, what was it like being a Mason? He said, well, we weren't anti-Catholic, really. It just wasn't compatible with it. Now, if you had been an English type of Mason, well, they would probably say, well, we're against a lot of the things the Catholic Church stands for. Uh, we're not, but we're Christian. If you ask a European type Freemason, yeah, we're extremely uh, uh, anti-Catholic. Uh, they might not put it that way. Uh, we think that, you know, religion is the opium of the people. The Catholic Church should be abolished, that sort of thing. Uh, so, you can't just lump all Freemasonry together, but none of it is really compatible with being a Catholic. Just different degrees of ranging from not Catholic to anti-Catholic. So I hope I said that, and I hope I didn't offend any Freemasons who say, <laughs> no, 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 you got that wrong. This is my perspective of Freemasonry. It may not be how a Mason would present it himself. Mm -hmm. And if I may say, uh, as a footnote, 
George Mason, despite his name, was never a Mason. (laughs) (laughs) We'll return to that a little bit later, um, and and, and briefly anyway. But for the moment, so we've mentioned the the social conditions and the problem of uh, the lack of capital ownership in, uh, in, in Europe and the, the crippling poverty that the, the inability to absorb the, the changes in the division of labor coming out of the industrial revolution. Now there's, you know, wages are now depressed. Wait, as the, the dictum goes today, wages are the first controllable expense business. And so they lower them. And so now you have people that are, that are brought in, you know, a destitution that it's hard for most people today to imagine. So then, you know, comes in Pauline Jericho. And again, sorry, Francophones, I know I'm messing up her name, sorry. Um, let's talk a little bit about her. You know, who's Pauline Jericho and what did she do to alleviate, you know, some of the, you know, the, the situation that the poor find themselves in, in, uh, in Lyon in France. Yeah. Now, she, Pauline Jericho was one of the most interesting people. I got interested in her uh, when I, after I was interested in St. Philomena, whom is a somewhat controversial saint, so we won't get into that. It shouldn't be, but anyway, one of my daughters is named after her, so there's no controversy on my side, but anyway. <laughs> well, I actually corresponded with the rector of the shrine at Mugnano with, mm-hmm. in Italy, which despite what it says in a lot of places, it was not dismantled, and mm-hmm. she did not become an illegal saint. The, right. This is completely a complete misunderstanding of the revision of the calendar mm-hmm. that took place. I mean... Right. She was not rift, uh, but <laughs> Pauline Jericho, and I think, again, as uh, as you said, apologies to the people who actually know how to pronounce French. Uh, she first started out as being very concerned with the spiritual development and the, the economic hardships being experienced by ordinary workers. Uh, as... And of course, her first initiatives were things like the, the Living Rosary and the Society for the Propagation of the Faith uh, to help the missions, because her brother was a missionary priest, or at least in training to be. I don't know enough about her. Did, did he actually become a missionary? I, I think. Any, anyway. I don't recall. I don't it was, it was very one. briefly touched on in the book. Yeah. At all, so. And, and my reading into her life was very sketchy. I couldn't find too much in English at that time. Because uh, since my interest was more in St. Philomena. Uh, but I did come across a reference to she became interested in or, or concerned with helping the economic plight of the workers. Because obviously, if you're struggling day to day just to survive, you're not going to be taking too much time out to for your spiritual growth and well-being. I mean, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're not meeting your basic animal needs, you probably aren't going to have much time for personal growth and spiritual development, uh, which was, of course, Mother Teresa of Calcutta's, uh, did I get there? Yeah. Uh, her big concern was, let's take care of people's needs so that they can then move on. I, I've seen criticisms of her saying, well, she didn't make any converts. I said, well, first of all, you don't know that because it wasn't what her apostolate was. It was to, let's take care of people. They're dying. Uh, then we can get to work on other things, which is the mission of other orders. 
we'll take care of people and keep them alive. And Pauline Jericho realized that something must be done to better the lot of the typical worker. And she got involved, unfortunately, with some unscrupulous people who took advantage of it and never implemented the ideas that she wanted to implement, which are described in some at some length in the book. Uh, I did read in another source that she wanted to do something about worker ownership. I could not find verification of this. And when I wrote to the people who uh, were running the Living Rosary at the time, they may still be running it, uh, they kind of broke off with me because they were defining social justice in a way different than me. They were completely interested only in spiritual things. Well, Pauline was not. She realized that if you want people to develop spiritually as an ordinary thing, you better take care of their material needs in a, in a just and reasonable manner first, which of course is the whole position with Catholic social teaching is that material well-being is not the only thing, but it is an important thing if you want people to be able to grow and develop spiritually. If you expect people to grow and develop spiritually and just promise them pie in the sky, which of course is the socialist big thing, oh, you religious people don't care about what's going on on earth, and this is the big gripe they make about the, the, the pro-life movement. Oh, you don't care about people after they're born. Baloney. A friend of mine, Father Matthew Hobbiger, who used to head up Human Life International, he was always talking about how you must restructure the social order to make it possible for people to take care of themselves through their own efforts. And this is why, for example, he... Uh, joined the Center for Economic and Social Justice, of which I'm the director of research, even though it's an interfaith group. We are concerned with how do you get people to, you know, be treated justly economically and as well as politically and spiritually. So, I mean, the, the, the free plug for CESJ, www.cesj.org. And you can see what we call economic personalism. Our, our book on with that title is due out within the next week, couple of weeks or so. Uh, I realize, okay, this is the book we're plugging today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, didn't mean to stick in my own commercial. Right. Uh, no, that's fine. But she got involved as, as from the description I read in They Leave the Faith, what she wanted to do sounded reasonable, but she trusted people she should not have trusted, clearly. And Neil, uh, the author of the book, uh, makes this clear. Uh, without going too much more into her life than is in this book, it's not clear what whether she was for worker ownership or just trying to raise wages or something else. But clearly, she put great importance on improving the material lot of the workers as part of their spiritual and religious development. Hmm. And that's one thing that, that you find with uh, discussions that happen today is that um, in opposing socialism, there's some people, whether they're Catholic libertarians or Catholic, you know, whatever, they say, well, well, you know, the market will take care of these things. And look, capitalism's pulled so many people out of poverty. You know, we, we don't need to, you know, the, all we need is more capitalism that, that'll do it. And it seems like there is kind of an overlooking, well, 
I've been there in my life where it was, um, you know, rice and beans and, oh, wait, we're actually out of rice and uh, I don't have enough gas in the car to get to the store to get the rice. You know, a lot of people have been there, but some people can't get out of that uh, or, or the system is set up against them. So, it, you know, it seems to me that's one of those things that a lot of people, especially um, people kind of look down upon trying to improve wages and other things, which I still can't understand, but they, they, they say, oh, yeah, well, wages can never be too low and CEO's compensation can never be too high. It's one of those curious little things that um, that go on there. But that's as they, people need the means to serve a God gave economy, basically, so that people can earn the good, you know, the goods that they need to acquire to take care of their, their necessary needs so that they can pray, so that they can live out the spiritual life. And so it, um, another fellow in this this um, the book right after from the same town is uh, Frederick Ozanam. So it, he um, so he works a lot in the social action, but he also works um, against the the, the neo Catholics that we were talking about earlier. So tell us a little bit about his life. Yeah, he I I, I keep repeating things. Very interesting person. Of course, they're all interesting people, or they wouldn't be in the book. Right. Uh, okay. He is best known today as the founder of the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, you know, working with the poor, trying to alleviate their condition. Uh, he was also an attorney and a good one, even though he didn't particularly want to be one, but he was also a history professor. He wrote some, you know, books that I didn't realize he had written until after I started researching my own uh great work on the history of Christendom, you know, why Christendom became and stayed Catholic. Uh, <coughs> but he very wisely was looking at, he was carrying out acts of social justice before the term came into being. The act of social justice is organizing for the common good, restructuring institutions to make it possible for people to take care of themselves through their own efforts. However, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to be able to carry out acts of social justice. And you're also always going to have people who, despite their best efforts, don't quite make it. So his, you know, his approach to social reform was work on the institutions, make it possible for people to become uh, you know, to be able to take care of themselves, but for everyone else, you also have to take care of their needs directly. So you, what you have is work for the common good to restructure it so that people can take care of themselves, but also work for the individual good, take care of the unfortunate, help people when they need it. You know, individual charity as well as social charity. Social charity doesn't mean widespread individual charity. It means loving your institutions enough to correct them through acts of social justice. See, social charity goes with social justice the way individual charity goes with individual justice. You take individual virtue is directed to the individual good. Social justice is direct. Social virtue is directed to the common good and they go together. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop that lecture to get back to Frederick Ozanam, uh, who was also, by the way, 
an American type liberal. You know, he actually considered emigrating to the United States at one point. He had relatives, I believe, in Virginia and in Massachusetts. Uh, this is not in this book. Uh, this was in some other biographies I read of him. Uh, unfortunately, today, most people just consider his work in the individual order and think that's why we, we should honor and respect him. He has, be, has been beatified by the Catholic Church. Uh, but to gain a true appreciation of him, you have to realize that it was not just in the individual order, but in the social order that he carried out his efforts. He was for legislative reforms the way another fellow in this book uh, worked with uh, Albert de Moon, you know, the, the Comte de Moon. Uh, and you have to take them together. It's not, social justice is never something that you do instead of individual justice and charity. It's in addition to. Sometimes social justice is no more than doing differently what you're already doing so that you take the whole of the common good into consideration as well as the individual good that you're trying to ameliorate. Uh, Frederick Ozanam, there, there's no way that the, that the profile in this book to do, you know, to be just can do Frederick Ozanam justice. Uh, there's just so much that he did and he died relatively young. The guy was amazing. I mean, his first uh, published work was a, was at the age of 18, believe it or not, when he wrote a pamphlet against the Saint Simonians, you know, the, the followers of uh, Henri de Saint Simon, uh, who, these guys were weird. Uh, they had their own special outfit, you know, they had to have a special costume, they had their own special religious rites, which, speaking euphemistically, from all I can determine, uh, they seem to be orgies of some kind, which outraged even the French. Uh, they must have been pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> af after a while, they, they, they split into two factions, one going after the world mother and trying to find, you know, occult artifacts in the Middle East and everything. It, it, was, it was weird. And the other ones were going more toward, you know, standard type socialism. Uh, and they began to hate each other. It, it just weird. Uh, but to get back to the person we're interested in, Frederick Ozanam, he wrote a pamphlet against them. Chateaubriand, himself a champion of Catholicism, praised the work, the pamphlet, as a piece of writing, but said that Ozanam had wasted his time writing it because the Saint Simonians weren't worth considering. Well, unfortunately, their influence is pervasive even today. Uh, when Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson de decided to write his apocalyptic type novel, uh, Lord of the World. He said one of the things he mentioned in a letter to a friend was that what helped inspire this was Henri de Saint-Simon and his effect on modern society. Oh, and by the way, another plug here, Lord of the World is not prophecy. It's a satire. It's an example of the future war genre of science fiction, which by pure coincidence, was born the same year that Robert Hugh Benson was born, uh, 1871, mm -hmm. with uh, Sir George Chesney's uh, novella, The Battle of Dorking, 
no comment, please. Dorking is a town in England. Uh, <laughs> but what, I wasn't going to say anything. Yeah. But what Benson did was take all the conventions of the future war uh, genre of science fiction and turn it into an apocalyptic masterpiece. It was not prophecy. You can find every single thing that Benson used in Lord of the World in all the other uh, uh, future war science fiction novels. A super explosive, a flying machine, usually an American or an Englishman uh, savior of the world, uh, and almost always against Germany. Or, but anyway, we're getting away from Ozanam right. again. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, but his uh, Ozanam, his first pamphlet was against the Saint Simonians. It was praised as a piece of literature, but Chateaubriand, among others, thought he was wasting his time, you know, going after the Saint Simonians because they were just a flash in the pan, which turned out they were not. Uh, his later works, uh, if you look, I, I believe uh, Father John Hardin in his Catholic Lifetime reading plan tells you to read Frederick Ozanam and then doesn't really tell you where to find his works. Now you can at least find out a little bit about Ozanam in uh, They Lived the Faith, and I highly recommend that you do. But he, he was such a remarkable person that you're not going to find out enough, with all due respect to the book here that we're going. And you really have to look into what he did. And not enough of his works have been translated into English. And those that have been are very hard to get. Uh, I have his book on the, you know, the, the, the struggles in the fifth century. And I think I have it within arm's reach, but I'm not sure I have such piles of books here. I, I don't know where, I, where it is. Uh, but basically, Read They Lived the Faith to find out about him and then see what you can dig up that he wrote and other works about him. It's well worth it. Absolutely. Um, so we, we've been using the term social justice and there's a large contingent of um, Catholics, of course, that falling in line with American, modern American politics, God forbid we even mention those, but you're on the, you're a Rush Limbaugh conservative or you're a AOC socialist of sorts. You hear social justice and people start, well, isn't that communism? I always see, you know, communists on the left using that term of social justice. I hear that on NPR. I hear that from Bernie Sanders. So how is social justice a Catholic concept, how is it not socialism? And in the person we're going to address next, uh, the Count de Moon, so I could nicely transition into him. Was he a Christian socialist, as, as some people seem to maintain? Yeah, he has been called one. The Encyclope Encyclopedia Britannica claims that he was a Christian socialist. But that is to misunderstand the difference between social justice as the socialists grabbed it and distorted it, and social justice as it developed, starting with Monsignor Aloysius Taparelli and culminating in the work of Pius XI. Uh, social justice in the socialist sense, uh, and from my point of view, the incorrect sense, is basically uh, working for individual good, uh, setting aside natural law precepts and just 
doing whatever the, the end justifies the means. If you want people to have a better life and higher wages, you just provide them a better life and a higher wages, whatever it takes. As I think, you know, in 1927, when you had the last debate between George Bernard Shaw and G.K. Chesterton, the uh, Chesterton said, what we're interested in here is redistributing power. If you empower the individual to take control over his own life, that's what Chesterton wanted. What Shaw said, no, 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 you're, you're all wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. Of course, Shaw was ever the diplomat. Uh, he said, the only thing we're interested here is redistributing income because that's the only thing that matters. Shaw was looking at the individual good. How do you improve people's lives? Well, you give them whatever they need. You redistribute on the basis of need. Chesterton was looking at power. If you want someone to have a good life, you make it possible for him to have a good life through his own efforts. And of course, if they don't quite make it, well, then you should be ready to help them out with charity or whatever other means is necessary within the framework of natural law. You don't set aside natural rights such as life, liberty, or private property simply because you want to do something that the principle forbids. In other words, to if someone says, I need that, but someone else owns it, you can't just take it. There are certain restrictions, and Leo XIII, and I think it's in paragraph 22 of Rerum Novarum, actually gives a very good synopsis of Catholic teaching with respect to private property. Ordinarily, anyone is entitled, every single person is entitled by nature to be an owner. And this is sacred and inviolable, as he also states at least twice in that encyclical. And this is why, for example, in Fratelli Tutti, when it says that private property is not sacred and inviolable, I said, but I don't understand that. And uh, Steve and I put together an entire discussion on that. Right. As to, I, I saw it. Yeah. I haven't read the document myself, so I, I refrain from commenting on it uh, in, in public because I haven't read it. So. Well, which is, <laughs> but, um, which is the just thing to do. Right. Uh, and all I'll say at this point is I was confused by it, and I would like some clarification on it because I don't understand what it says in light of what I understand about Catholic teaching and natural law. But to get to our point here is that as the socialists understand social justice, the end justifies the means, and you can set aside life, natural rights of life, liberty, and private property to get what you want if they're standing in the way. Uh, Monsignor Taparelli's under, you know, concept of the principle of social justice is, no, you cannot do that. You are justified in doing anything that does not violate life, liberty, or private property in order to improve people's lives. That is a principle of social justice. Now, what Pius XI did was take this principle of social justice and turn it into a particular virtue of social justice. And then he defined the particular virtue of social justice very scientifically, if that doesn't sound too odd when you're talking about philosophy or something. But philosophy is a science. 
as is theology. And it is, is also, you know, mathematics and physics and these others. They are sciences. And that means rules apply. You can't just do what you want. So what Pius XI did, and he studied uh, Taparelli very closely. And it's interesting to note that soon after his election, he granted an audience to this obscure American seminarian whom no one had ever heard of by the name of Fulton Sheen. And one of the things that Pius XI asked of Fulton Sheen during the audience was, have you read Taparelli? And Fulton Sheen being the fundamentally honest guy he was and having never heard of Taparelli in his life said, no, I haven't. And Pius XI said, I want you to study every word which to me says that Pius XI knew that Fulton Sheen was going to be somebody. Well, I think that Fulton Sheen absorbed Taparelli's principle of social justice, but he never grasped Pius XI's virtue, particular virtue of social justice, which is a virtue directed to the common good and the institutions of society. And it has its own rules, which are described in a, uh, another commercial here, you can download Father William Faree's pamphlet, Introduction to Social Justice, for free on the CESJ website, and it will describe in detail the characteristics and laws of social justice. But to be very brief, hopefully here, as if, believe it or not, I am being brief. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, social justice is the particular virtue directed to the institutions of the common good. The idea being that you restructure or, uh, let's see, wait a second. Okay, uh, I just saw something appear on my screen. Uh, the uh, social justice is directed to the restructuring of the social order, reforming of, reform of institutions so that people can take care of themselves through their own efforts and not have to rely on redistribution or charity or welfare of the state in order to take care of themselves. Indiv it, social justice is not a replacement for individual virtue. It is a way of enabling individual virtue. Right. So, um, so in Count de Moon, uh, what did he do uh, particularly to try to um, bring in social justice? What he did was focus on legislative reforms, trying to reconcile the political order and the religious order so that people could be both good citizens and good Catholics at the same time without one prejudicing the other. I mean, it, the whole idea of social justice is so that people can live their lives without cutting out a big chunk of it. So that, it, uh, in a sense, it's what, uh, St. Pius X called integralism, and which the, the, the socialists really hate these days, because what it does is if social justice is carried out correctly or properly, you can live your religious life and your civil life and your domestic life all in conformity so that there's no contradictions. The, the social order as a whole, which is the three societies of man, the civil, that is the political, the state, the religious church and the domestic family, marriage and family, are all in conformity so that you don't have to worry about, you know, 
if I if I'm a good husband and father or wife and mother, uh, I'm not in conflict with what it means to be a member of the civil order, uh, you know, in the political order or the economic order. And I am also my my religion doesn't contradict either of these. In other words, everything fits together. That's the goal of social justice is to create a holistic society without contradictions. Now, of course, we're imperfect human beings. We're not going to get that. But we can work toward it. Remember, in the, in the preamble to the Constitution, it says, form a more perfect union. The whole idea of being a human is that we are infinitely perfectible. We become more fully human. We're never going to become fully human. The only true full human being was Jesus because he combined God's infinite perfection with man's infinite perfectibility. That's your theology for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the last two that we're going to talk about um, more on the side of intellectual action. So one is uh, Joseph de Maistre. Um, Again, French pronunciation, probably messing it up. Um, what were his achievements? And also, early on in life, he was a Freemason. How did he come to re- renounce that? And then, uh, you know, and what did he accomplish actually as a Catholic? Yeah. Well, we can deal with him very quickly, not not to shortchange him. I mean, if you want to <laughs> find book, out so. about him, read the book. I, I, I hate to say that, but <laughs> I, actually, I love to say that. Read the book. That way, you'll you'll know more than you're going to get here. Uh, So very briefly, he started out as a Freemason, essentially realized this isn't going anywhere. He became an ultramontane Catholic, which means he was putting far more on the Pope than the Pope really should have put on him. But he didn't become a a schismatic or a heretic. You know, it is really odd that, you know, you have some people who are radical traditionalists who put far more on the Pope then the Pope is really supposed to be doing, and then they separate from the Pope because the Pope isn't doing everything they want. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's weird. It, 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 like Delaminet, whom I mentioned before, he was putting so much on the Pope that the Pope was practically supposed to be the rule of the world. But then when the Pope disagreed with Delaminet's uh, uh, you know, assessment or analysis of what the Pope's role was, he separated from the Pope renounced Christianity, repudiated his priesthood, and invented his own religion. Ironically, de Laminay was the heir of de Maistre. He became the acknowledged leader of the neo-Catholic movement. Well, that was not what de Maistre was trying to do. He was trying to strengthen the Catholic Church after the wreckage of the French Revolution. And from the American liberal position, he went a bit too far. But he did. He he stretched it, but he didn't break it. Sort of like Dan O'Connell would stretch the thread, tying Ireland to Great Britain, but he didn't break it. it he called it the golden thread. And similarly, De Maistre was very intent upon keeping Catholics Catholic, without separating them. Even though, from position of, you know, true liberalism. He may have carried his political theories a bit too far toward, you know, monarchy and that sort of thing. Right. Uh, last on our list is um, someone that should be better known in, in a lot of circles, Arrestus Brownson, 
So let's talk it now. now whereas with everyone else we've spoken of uh, has been in, in, in Europe somewhere or, in, or Latin America, in the case of Moreno, Orestes Brownson is an American. So what, would, what was he able to accomplish? Okay, we could spend a couple hours on Brownson. <laughs> and I got interested in him when I found out that he was buried at Notre Dame, where mm-hmm. I went to school. I've actually visited his grave. It's right there in the tiny little crypt chapel at, at the Sacred Heart Basilica. Uh, very small room. I think he deserves more. Uh, but anyway, it ought to be more public so that more people see it. But he started out uh, as basically a Unitarian. I think he started out as a Presbyterian or some such thing, became a Unitarian. Uh, he became a socialist. He was one of the transcendentalists. He was one of the big three. And then he committed the ultimate crime. He became a Catholic. And it's astonishing how many of the transcendentalists did become Catholic, or at least very friendly to Catholicism. But to become, actually become a Catholic meant that you were pretty much erased from early American society. Mm-hmm. But even then, Brownson was so much Brownson that they couldn't quite you know, keep him down. His great work was the American Republic, in which he had had a grasp of true American liberalism in that, you know, the individual and the state, that is the individual and the collective, both exist. And the American system was, at least in his day, uniquely positioned to take advantage of one without prejudice to the other. In other words, he was, excuse me, Brownson somehow recognized the uniqueness of man as a political animal, as Aristotle called him, an individual with a social nature. The individualist, you know, rejects, tends to reject society, whereas the socialist or the collectivist tends to reject individualism. But the American system, as Brownson saw it, and he saw this uniquely in Catholicism, uh, which was how he managed to reconcile himself with Newman after each one accusing the other one of doing things, uh, was that the American system was uniquely constructed to, to be Catholic, which is what de Tocqueville also said, you know, a, a generation earlier. And they, they each saw the American experience as being an application of Catholicism in a way that most Americans, even today, aren't don't really appreciate. It, it's it's hard to put in words very quickly, but uh, the way De Tocqueville put it was that he said, if Christianity survives at all uh, in America, America will probably become one day a Catholic country. Not not Catholicism as an established church but where most of the people, if they're Christian at all, are Catholic. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, So Brownson's writings, too, he wrote quite a bit. Um, Where where are some other places besides uh, the book where people will find his writings? The the American Quarterly Review comes to mind. Yeah, and then, which was also Brownson's Quarterly Review. Right. Uh, And then I think it changed names a couple of times. Trying, he's got. There's a lot of his stuff on the internet if you can find it. There was a Brownson Society at Notre Dame. 
I, they may still have a website. I'm not sure if they're active at all. I tried to write to them and never got heard anything back. Uh, there probably should be more Brownson societies. Uh, I'm not sure how much is in print. Now, the American Republic has several editions in print. That is well worth reading. Now, when I say that, of course, it was written in the 19th century, and the way it's written may not appeal to a lot of people today with their, you know, the, the modern brief attention span. But mm-hmm. it is, he was a good writer. OrestesBranson.org. Uh, what, pardon? OrestesBranson.org has a lot of his writings, too. Oh, okay, good. Uh, and, of course, being online, they're free, which is one of my favorite words next to beer. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the American Republic, uh, the, the John Harden, Father John Harden, in his Catholic Lifetime Reading Plan, does caution people. If you're reading something prior to his... Uh, conversion to Catholicism in 1846 or 48, in the, in the 1840s, be cautious, because he was a socialist until he saw the light and became a Catholic. Uh, he actually lived at uh, Brook Farm, you know, the Transcendentalist Commune, which later tra- uh, transformed itself into a Fourierist uh, phalanx, they call it, much to Brownson's disgust. Uh, the, the Foyerists called themselves New Christians or Neo-Catholics, and uh, this really got Brownson's dander up, shall we say. <laughs> and if there's one thing you didn't want to do, it was get into an argument with Brownson. Uh, he tended to get, shall we say, excited and pound things. Uh, he was kind of an intellectual bully at times. Uh, that doesn't mean he was wrong, but he tended to get a little bit forceful in how he expressed himself, sometimes to the detriment of personal relationships. I mean, he even got into it with Isaac Hecker, Father Isaac Hecker, the founder of the Paulists, who was somewhat uh, mischaracterized as being a socialist at times, and a few other things, and an Americanist in the wrong way. Uh, Testem benevolence nostre, the 1899 uh, encyclical or apostolic letter to the bishops of the United States uh, resulted from uh, egregious misunderstanding of Hecker's life and works that had to do with a very bad translation of a life of Hecker into French. Uh, That gets into modernism and the whole issue there when we're trying to talk about Orestes Brownson. So we'll just, we, we, we can close by saying, yes, if you can find something by Brownson written after 1848, you'll do well to read it, as well as see if you can pick up some good. Uh, the they lived the faith is a good introduction to Brownson, and it will lead. And, it, and I believe it cites some of his, the, the the biographies of him that are well worth reading. None of which really gets into his true significance, but the I in my opinion. The best work on Brownson has yet to be written. I know an author and I know a publisher. <laughs> Just throwing it out well, there. <laughs> some authors still have a great deal of work to do trying to figure out the work they've been working on. Right. Make, make way with the faith of bestseller. You might get an Arrestus Brownson book. <laughs> 
Thank you for volunteering me. You're you're as bad as Norm, my associate. <laughs> Door was wide open. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Michael, for coming on and spending your time here with us. I know you're very busy and you have a lot to do, so we really appreciate it. Um, they Live the Faith, uh, great lay leaders of modern times. You can get it at uh, www.mediatrixpress.com and again, uh, and anywhere else where such things are available. But uh, I get I do a little bit better if you go to the website. So please do that. We'll put the link below in the show notes. <laughs> right. All right. Ryan, thanks, bud. Michael, thank you as always.